Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Carrie Krasinski. Carrie Krasinski is the co-founder of the Sustainable Finance Institute and the Carbon Tracker Initiative. He has co-published seven books regarding sustainable finance and investing. He is also a lecturer and researcher at several universities, including Columbia, Yale, Brown, New York University, and Concordia. So, Carrie, welcome. How's it going in New Haven, Connecticut? It's uh, it's very nice here. Thanks, Jonas, for having me. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so, Carrie, thank you again for being on this podcast. I've been really looking forward to this interview. In terms of preparation, I went through all your books and research, and I was really impressed. When I was looking through your LinkedIn profile, I saw that you started off as a computer science student at Hofstra University in New York. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Hofstra University is uh, Bobby Axelrod from the HBO TV show Billions, as he also studied there. But instead of going into the uh, hedge fund route, which Bobby Axelrod took, you instead delved into sustainable finance. So could you tell us more about how your career evolved and how did you end up getting involved in the sustainable finance sector? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I'm in my third career, as it were, which is sustainable finance, which is a super fascinating field. I always wanted to kind of connect what I do to trying to make the world a better place. Didn't really know how to do it. So spent about eight and a half years as a computer programmer working in different capacities and had an opportunity to join management in the early 90s of a data company. So that was my first shift and moved into the management of information, business information, became an expert on institutional investors, how they behave, what they own, was quoted quite frequently about what Warren Buffett was doing and that sort of thing. And that all got commoditized. And I started to think, well, since I understand how the financial system works, who the actors are, what if we brought in some ESG information and took a look at how we could bring all these things together? And it was about 20 years ago that I was looking at a mutual fund and its holdings in the UK, Jupiter Ecology, actually. And I was intrigued by that. It's like, oh, here's a fund trying to solve the world's problems and make money at the same time. That's an interesting concept. So I watched that fund for a few years and lo and behold, it was outperforming its benchmark at the time. And so that was sort of what brought me in. Turns out I ended up launching Carbon Tracker with people who were involved with, at, at Jupiter originally and setting up what was one of the first funds uh, of its kind. And slowly but surely, I was asked to teach by someone at Columbia. Uh, I joined TrueCost for helping them establish here in the US uh, and eventually just moved into an independent role almost 10 years now of teaching, writing, and advising. So it's been an interesting, unique journey, which I think is common in this industry. There's no, There's been no way to study in an advanced manner sustainable finance until you know fairly recently. So, Carrie, the term ESG was first coined in 2005. You co-founded the Carbon Tracker Initiative in 2007, and you published your first book 
on sustainable investing in 2008. So all of this was happening in the early stages of the financial crisis. So what was it like doing all these different initiatives in the early developments of the sustainable finance movement? Uh, what was your overall vision at the time? And how has it changed since then? Yeah, fascinating question. Yeah, it's interesting. The Carbon Tracker Initiative was originally going to be called the Investor Disclosure Project. That's That was the conversation back in 2007. We were going to look at the holdings of some of the uh, fossil fuel producing companies and that sort of thing, which didn't ever happen. But that idea that Genesis became eventually Carbon Tracker, actually its parent company, Investor Watch, was named you know, as a sort of an offshoot of, of that. Anyway, Nick Robbins uh, and Mark Campanelli and I met in the mid-2000s around that concept of looking at ownership. And Nick wanted to do a book. He had done a book on the British East India Company. I was looking to do a book on sustainable finance. I had the idea of doing a book on, it was going to be called, I Own What? Question mark. And it, the idea was to help people just take a look what was in their portfolios. And if they were kind of surprised or unhappy about that, that might create pressure for them to uh, ask their fund managers to change what they were doing. A positive dynamic might ensue from all this. My thinking has evolved since then. But eventually, Nick and I came together to do our first book, which was really trying to move what was a negative practice, by and large, of the uh, former phrase, socially responsible investing. I think we tried to beat that phrase with a stick. And kind of help help people think more about sustainable investing, which has become more of the common phrase, and, and move from negative to positive solutions because systems thinking teaches us that it's positive approaches that can really make a difference. Uh, we continue to focus on that to this day. Our books sometimes come out at, at interesting times. So our book in 2008 came out pretty much right when the financial crisis happened. So I, I fondly remember our book launch in London on driving in driving rain with with a financial crisis underway uh, at the old conservative club in St. James's. And yeah, that wasn't the best timing. People in the financial industry were hiding under their desks, hoping not to get tapped on the shoulder for the next round of layoffs. Same, same was true. It's around the same time I started at TrueCost. The financial crisis made pretty much anything in this field a bit of a challenge for a few years, but obviously things have rapidly progressed, especially in the last few years. So that's been heartening to see. But my thinking has evolved a lot since those days, and I think we're making some meaningful progress, but there's also a lot more we need to be doing as well. So speaking of socially responsible investing, you published a very interesting paper in 2014 in the Journal of Sustainable Finance Investment. Uh, it had a very interesting title called The Long and Necessary Death of Socially Responsible Investing. Could you give us an overview of that article? Yeah, I mean, basically the concept was that, and you hear people talk about this, well, you know, sustainability should become baked into everything. And as a result, the way that socially responsible investing was practiced in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, it was very much uh, packaged and presented as quote unquote other. And so it, the idea being that, well, you know, you're doing something wrong and we're doing it right. And, and that I felt needed to change. We needed to sort of eliminate this us and them mentality. So that's really what that piece was was focused on. It's where do we really need to get to? We need to get to, you know, I don't know about full integration, but more integration of environmental and social uh, issues into decision making 
and so that they become one more thing to look at, one more component of risk management, one more way to focus on investment opportunities. And that's really what we were uh, we were at with that piece. And the phrase has sort of died. You don't hear it anymore, which I guess is a good thing because the implication of socially responsible is that everyone else is socially irresponsible. So yeah, again, it was like, how do we remove this us and them mantra as it were? So Gary, the term socially responsible investing may have died out, but now, now there's a relatively new term called divestment. And there's often a big debate about whether investors should undertake engagement or whether they should divest. There's also another option where some stakeholders have been recommending that you should first engage. And if the engagement doesn't work out, then you should threaten with divestment. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, it's actually a perfect question to follow up from the previous one as well, because what seems to have happened is people have a, I think people have an instinct that they see something they don't like. And I, I, maybe I had this instinct as well at the start of my you know, movement into this, into this field, say, you know, 15 years ago, thinking that somehow looking at the holdings of a fund would make a big difference. You know, people see something they don't like, they don't want to be involved with it. Let's sell that. I don't want, I don't want my values to match my money. Whereas that's not really going to help solve the problems that we're concerned about. So how do we actually move the needle on climate change? You know, the way to do that is to look at annual carbon emissions on a global basis and see if they're going down. They're not. So what we're not so we're not focusing on the right questions when we think about divestment, because divestment won't solve that. At the same time, engagement without uh, you know any recourse is also not really the answer. So uh, we served for a year for Comptroller DiNapoli in New York State on the decarbonization advisory panel. Uh, and we brought engagement and divestment advocates together under the concept of minimum standards. So when you visit a New York restaurant, there's a letter on the window. If it's an A, the restaurant passed all the inspections and you can trust the food. And if it says grade pending, you know you may not want to walk into the restaurant. So you know we don't have that in investing. We just sort of trust us, we've got it, or you know, some nascent certifications on funds and institutions talk about more certifications to come in the EU and so forth. But we have nothing in the US. You know, how, do you, how do you know whether, how to trust a fund manager isn't greenwashing and so on? So at any rate, we feel that minimum standards applied by sector can not only bring engagement and divestment advocates together, but in that panel, we had a former SEC commissioner who was a divestment advocate who felt minimum standards was a better approach. And so that's, uh, yeah, and, and you know, again, we have to think like investors normally do. Uh, first, you figure out what you want to own, buy it. And then once you own something, you have responsibilities you should execute. And then you have a sell discipline. So th- this idea of kind of divest, invest is actually backwards. First, we have to invest, and we, then we have to have a sell discipline and maybe get away from this sort of values-focused approach to investment that actually won't change anything. Because if I sell a share to you and you're less responsible than I am for whatever reason, how does that make the world a better place? So in 2011, you published a book called Evolutions in Sustainable Investing, where you provided several prominent examples of different types of funds and financial products since this was 10 years ago and a lot has changed since then i was hoping that we could do a rapid fire round where i would mention a specific asset class 
and you would provide the most prominent examples in 2021-22. So since you started off the conversation with Jupiter Ecology, what are the most prominent sustainable ETFs and mutual funds that you see in today's market? Wow, that's that's a complicated question. There, there's so many. This is not rapid fire. Uh, depends on what country you're in, first of all. But uh, I'm very fond of Stuart Investors as an example that listeners might be able to look at. Uh, everything they do is transparent. If you go to the Stuart Investors website, you'll see all their holdings, why they own them, how they outperform using sustainability. They manage over $20 billion. There are many successful managers using what we call the the seven tribes of sustainable investing, positive, best-in-class approaches, now managing $20 billion or more, generation, they're not available to the public. Parnassus does this sort of work. Brown Advisory does this work. In the UK, there are a number of fund managers. Stewart is in Edinburgh. Bailey Giffords is in Edinburgh. Mirov is in France. So uh, long answer, but we look for positive, best-in-class funds that outperform even Kathy Wood's ARC innovation touches on these themes. You know, she got $60 billion at a peak last year. Anyway, so there, there are increasing opportunities for folks to, to participate. And the, the field has completely transformed in the last 10 years. Now, let's move on to something that may be more relevant to institutional investors. What about private equity? Uh, now, let's move on to a field that's more relevant maybe to institutional investors, uh, private equity. Yeah, private equity. A few years ago, folks in the private equity field were like, if you ask them, would would the field become sustainable, they would laugh at you. And now every private equity firm is taking it super seriously. Folks at Blackstone and TPG tell us they can't sell a traditional oil and gas fund to an LP. Like that, that's a totally new phenomenon. Or KKR just announced a sustainability panel with Bob Eccles uh, as chair. All the firms are taking it super seriously. But the interesting thing about private equity is that it's mature companies. It's, and there's a lot happening in VC, which might be your next question. To really decarbonize private equity is hard because they can't write the tickets for these smaller businesses that aren't mature enough. So like PE needs VC to mature. Uh, so really interesting things happening, but a way to go. So what about venture capital? Uh, what about VC? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, we were fortunate to uh, have a small hand in starting what's become, the, I think, the most successful free newsletter, Climate Tech VC. And uh, VC has exploded in general. At universities like Brown, where I teach, were up 51% last year as an endowment, which is crazy. And there were other universities who've moved more towards VC and have experienced outsized returns as a result of being early in, say, Sequoia. And Climate Tech VC is starting to really take off. And that's where we think there's a lot of potential. So uh, a few years ago, there was nothing like this really happening, aside from a few small funds like DBL Partners. But now it's really taking off. You're seeing you know tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars starting to try to find solutions across the board, whether it's climate change sustainable agriculture, and so on. It's very exciting. And, and to hope, hopefully those outsized returns will lead to more mature companies, and that can then get the private equity space more involved. So just a kind of a, real, a really promising, positive dynamic occurring. And also, these solutions are mostly being invented in the US. They need to be deployed globally. So we see a really, really big opportunity in bringing these new ideas and making sure they're being implemented on the ground where those changes need to happen. I read that you were a sustainability advisor 
for a recent SPAC transaction in early 2021 with a company called Deep Green Metals. Could you tell us more about your thoughts regarding SPACs? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. The SPAC phenomenon kind of took off last year at a time when the pandemic hit, and it was actually a lifeline for many companies. The, the ideal scenario for, for SPACs as it intersects with sustainability and impact is that uh, often you see new ideas not generating revenue today. They might need a few years to, to create what might be billions of dollars of revenue, whether it's uh, artificial fertilizer, a company like Kula Bio or Deep Green Metals now, the metals company, looking at uh, new ways of, of creating the the metals we need for the EV and battery transition. You know, these companies won't necessarily make money in, for a few years, uh, whereas PE and VC investors kind of need those returns on an annual basis to satisfy pension fund risk return expectations. So SPACs actually, if deployed properly, can create patient capital. And it doesn't always work that way. You know, nothing, nothing against Shaquille O'Neal, but he has a SPAC. Uh, and of course, you know, there's always room for uh, silly ideas and abuse and problems can occur. So the SPACs do create an interesting potential mechanism for for patient capital. So uh, it's been fascinating to be, to be advising companies in a space where people might scratch their head about uh, deep sea mining, for example, and, and be worried about the impacts of that. But I would invite anyone concerned about that to visit, say, Sulawesi in Indonesia or Norelsk in northern Russia, Siberia, where high quality nickel is mined and what the impacts of that are and, and do the math on which is what better or worse. Anyway, so uh, I think all too often we don't look at the fine details of, of what the impacts of what we're going to do in these transitions will actually be and what can make them better. So there's, the SPAC phenomenon is a really interesting trend if used properly. Uh, and you'd like to see more of this again in Asia, where we have ha at least half of the world's impact occurring on a day-to-day -day basis. What about hedge funds? Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of smart people are moving into hedge funds. This is what you'd want to see, right? It's like a bellwether. It, hedge funds will get involved in sustainability issues if there's value really transacting. Uh, that's kind of what you want. You want you want there to be value that's transacting, and you, as a result, you'd expect hedge funds to try to arbitrage that, whether it's the price of carbon or value being left on the table by companies not transforming in the way that they might. So I see that as a good thing. And yeah, we're seeing more and more smart people seeing those opportunities, and you'd like to see that happen as a way. Uh, you know, George Soros talks about in his books. You know, everything should seek its true value. And hedge funds is a way to help that occur. Some people push back on shorting. And uh, I think markets need a mechanism to help everything seek its true value. So I'm happy to see that. So you co-published a book on sustainable real estate in 2019. And it was interesting to see how you and your colleagues were able to cover different regulations, how certifications such as LEED are having an impact and how ESG is being integrated into real estate investment trusts. So what are your thoughts about real estate as a sustainable asset class? Yeah, thank you. Uh, even going back to our first book in 2008, it, it was probably the most robust sector at trying to seek and develop more sustainable solutions. And you know, there's been literature on how more sustainable buildings perform better financially. Of course, the pandemic has changed everything. Uh, and also the uh, China Evergrande scenario. So 
you know, while say Norges Bank was thinking about going into five to ten percent real estate and focused on cities, you know, I think a lot of people are having a rethink. You know, people are able to work from home and people are they might move around a bit more. You know, this this assumption that there'll be this race to cities over time, the pandemic seems to have affected that. So it's an interesting time for real estate. Uh, you know, there's a big challenge with the existing building stock. We really haven't seen the efforts to transform and make more efficient existing buildings. It's not really quite financially viable. So there's some challenges there. There's sort of a um, valley of death of new ideas that tends to happen. And so you know, the, the exciting thing is that we've developed all sorts of new technologies. And once we do start building more, especially around the world, rebuilding cities like Cairo and Jakarta, it presents opportunities to, to be transformational. So you'd like to see more more thought being put into that. And also, it'll be interesting to see how the infrastructure bill here plays out. I'm not always confident we'll spend the money well, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Speaking of infrastructure financing, you published a very interesting paper back in 2016 called The State of Sustainable Finance in the United States with the United Nations Environment Program and the Design for Sustainable Finance Systems Initiative. I highly recommend the listeners to check it out because I find it to be a very comprehensive report. So the Biden administration has set itself with a 2035 target for carbon-free electricity. And I wanted to pick your brains on financial innovations, for example, solar yield cause solar yield companies and public policies such as renewable energy portfolio standards or tax credits that are necessary to accelerate the energy transition it's super interesting yeah yield codes were modeled after mlps to have the same tax advantages that pipelines oil production industry had they they definitely had a, a challenging time shortly thereafter but so did mlps so i think yield codes were rightly criticized, but uh, it was it was more of a problem in in the field more generally. the The actual energy transition, as it will occur regionally, is is more complex than meets the eye. I think uh, the New York Green Bank is a really good example of an organization to look at uh, incentives that can be put in place. How you could mix policies in a region to really be transformative. New York State just announced uh, ways to bring more hydro in from Quebec. Because you know, if you think about a city like New York, how will a city like New York really transform its energy mix to become low to, to zero carbon? There's, there's no space to put solar panels. You know, there's obviously more offshore wind uh, that can be put into the water areas. But it's really hard to replace the energy that can come more efficiently from power plants. So, and then, you know, Indian points been shut down. So, you know, regionally, the, one of the things we do in our classes is look at the complexities of energy transitions. The Energiewende in Germany has had both uh, successes and challenges. Germany really hasn't gotten off coal at all. While right next door, you have France, which is, you know, completely all in on nuclear, Germany's gotten off of nuclear. So, these things are happening differently in different parts of the world. How will Indonesia ever transform with all the islands that they have and the fact that coal is the cheapest option? Uh, and there's a game, actually, I would recommend. Uh, Richard Rice at Hunter College has this now online game where you can try to envision what the energy transition might look like in a city like New York. It's a super interesting game. 
which, uh, you know, there's always going to be kind of stops and starts. There's policies that can be put in place, and then there are election cycles. So you might expect a slowdown to occur due to unanticipated pushback or unanticipated events. But yeah, it's a combination of a mix of policies and, and will and political capital that seems to be the, the, the holy grail for making transformations happen. If you don't have all the pieces together and you, need, you really need a system, a system approach, so policies alone won't do it. You need sort of the political will of the people. And yeah, good, good luck can help as well to avoid surprises along the way. So yeah, it isn't just one thing per se, but you know, it's a combination that, that tends to be what, where you're seeing the best uh, action occur. Speaking of public policy, what do you think regulators should do to improve the state of climate-related disclosures from investors and the private sector? We're increasingly looking at, again, system approaches. So what we like to say is that we've kind of had things a bit backwards at times, whether it's ESG data, looking at that as the holy grail, as opposed to like, what are the outcomes we're seeking on a societal basis? What are the case studies for delivering that change? And then measure the strategies and the system on an ongoing basis. And data can help measure strategies and systems, maybe not so much is the change agent unto itself. And I would say the same is true of kind of the COP process. We just came out of Glasgow without much of a result. A lot of people were unhappy about that and a lot of new buzzwords and coalitions and whatnot. And so my way of thinking, why are we trying to get 200 global countries to all agree on one thing? Why don't we have a bottom-up coalition that people can join, corporations can join, investors can join, and try to build a majority for action and build a common agenda that everyone can rally around or enough people can rally around. I think that's what we need to be doing globally. And we have to, I think, stop thinking Western all the time. So it is, public companies are you know, at most one third of the glo global footprint. People are two thirds. And we're, I think we're often not designing our solutions, whether it's disclosure, transparency, or otherwise for the, for the changes we need to actually see occur. If we could add up and see all of the corporate transformation occur that we would like to in combination with more investment action, and we're probably going to need to be creative on creating more capital to deploy towards, say, solving the SDGs by 2030, and also getting a majority of the average person behind this common agenda. If we can get those things together, then the policy can follow. Policymakers will only be able to act if they know they're going to stay in office, if they put a price on carbon in place, for example, in the US. You don't hear any talk about that anymore because people are afraid, perhaps rightly so, that they'll get voted out of office. So we have to sort of build, I think, this bottom-up coalition for action. And it's not just going to be corporate disclosure or investor disclosure. I mean, you'd like to see investment institutions really transform themselves and take these issues as sort of primary. And you know, whether you're a large uh, bank, brokerage firm, lending institution, fund manager, like make sustainability one of your key drivers at scale. Make sure all your people are educated, incentivized, have the right strategies in place. You know, so we can get corporates investors and people moving together, then I think we have a chance, but we're not there. Speaking of taking an educational and coalition approach, you recently co-founded the Sustainable Finance Institute 
And one of the many interesting aspects of the Institute is the Certified Sustainable Finance Analyst Program. So could you give us an overview of the Institute and how does the program work? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the Sustainable Finance Institute has been quite successful, actually. Uh, it's only been around for three and a half years. We launched it originally to try to bring kind of Western sustainable finance thinking to Asia and China in particular. So we hosted our first event uh, in Shenzhen in 2019 at uh, Peking University, one of their business schools, uh, which was fascinating. And uh, you know, we also worked together on our seventh book about China, and we've done a variety of projects. We did the clean energy theme for the Global Impact Investing Initiative. We're working on an innovation platform right now called WIPO Green, and we're, we're working with uh, a major index provider to help build a better ESG index for Asia, China in particular. So a lot of interesting project work. And We've also launched something called the, the U.S.-China Better Relations Coalition that students have run with now. They launched a journal. So we've been active in a lot of ways. And most recently, the CSFA, or Certified Sustainable Finance Analyst designation, was, was launched, uh, I think, over a year ago. And the idea was to, to create a designation where we could bring people together globally and have global cohorts of students who learn from each other. Uh, to not just have like these Western approaches. So our cohorts have been extremely global. The mo most recent classes have had students from oil and gas companies in Asia, students from Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Australia, Africa, South America, Europe. It's hard to find time zones that everyone can, can function together. Uh, we've had you know, folks from leading financial institutions, from corporations, consulting firms. And it's, it's, it's worked really well. We bring people through the issues, the solutions, whether they're working or not, how do we actually do this properly, and then help the students with their own work and help them advance their own thinking and work on projects together, building communities of practice. This actually goes back to 2013. At Columbia, we developed a program for Carrie Kennedy and her RFK Center. We had $15 trillion of assets represented in the first cohort. A lot of people who you've heard about were students at the time. Ann Simpson from CalPERS, folks from New York State Common who were close to to this day, and a bunch of other pension funds and leading organizations. These communities of practice then can become important post-graduation groups who can stick together and help each other. And so that's been great to see. We had a convening of students a number of times last year. One of, the, one of our key theories of change is to help Asia with its transformation and not just have Western conversations. Another is to work with as many young students and mid-career students who want to switch their careers and help them navigate their way forward and bring them together. So uh, yes, the CSFA is a key part of that theory of change in particular. Thank you, Carrie. So you mentioned the book Modern China, which you published in 2020. You managed to get it forwarded by Dr. Ma Yun, who is the chair of the China Green Finance Committee. And he is also a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the People's Bank of China, which is the Chinese Central Bank. China is a global leader when it comes to green finance. Your book covers the history of China as a nation, how did its economy and its financial markets evolve? And most importantly, how did its green bond market evolve? 
So could you tell us more about it? Uh, yeah, again, our books are sometimes interestingly timed. It came out you know, like during the like the height of the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. So I'm not sure our timing is always the best when these books come out. But uh, we've been very happy with that book. First of all, we had 12 students from Brown uh, help us. My partner, Johnny Wong, who splits his time between Miami and Shanghai, and Justin Q, who's actually joined a hedge fund recently from uh, previously with Fidelity and JP Morgan. So the 15 of us did the book together. Uh, and Dr. Ma kindly gave us an introduction. He basically heads up green finance in China. There was a lot that we wanted to do. We've really come to be of the belief that a lot of people just don't understand China in the West, that uh, whether it was the previous administration or just not visiting the country really... China's rapidly changing, as I, as I know you know. Over its last 40 years, it, its rapid rise, its 5,000-year history, uh, the chaotic periods, especially in the 1800s. And, and there's a lot of reasons that China has become the country that it is today that I don't think a lot of people understand. So our book tried to be honest about the ESG challenges that China faces, but also document how it can be part of the solution. It has a history of being an innovating nation, having invented things like the printing press in its past. Uh, so we tried to try to capture its history in a very sort of uh, short way and try to help people in the West understand China better. What caused it to rise so rapidly? Why is China one of the few countries outside the US that's developing successful technology companies? What are, what are, what are China's real ambitions? China's never really gone outside of its borders. It's very interested in control. And can its innovation and entrepreneurship, can, can that be harnessed to help the, the severe challenges we face, both from an impact and a climate perspective? So uh, we also had case studies on investors and what they were doing, which is what we featured in our event as well. We wanted it very much to be uh, modeled off of a, an event we hosted at Yale in 2017, where we suggested that, again, the ESG conversation was a bit backwards. Like, what are the investment case studies that are actually delivering better outcomes? So we featured the TPG Rise Fund and their head of Asia spoke at the event, East Capital, uh, our friends from Hong Kong, and uh, quite a few private equity uh, firms uh, that were emerging in the region. And so that we featured some of those in the book, talked about how China's expanding its rest of world activities and its rise as a leader in issuing green bonds. Fixed income is like 95% of the economy in the financial system in China. So for all of the talk about public companies, it's actually not a significant percentage of the activity, or certainly over the last five to 10 years. China's built out its high-speed rail networks, and it's innovating like crazy in, in many areas. And I just think the country's badly misunderstood. The main ethos of the book, which was excerpted in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, was our call for a cooperation imperative. We may have differences, but why don't we try to work them out? And if there's something we're not happy with that China does, why don't we try to first talk about it instead of finger point and maybe uh, take things out of perspective sometimes. Let's at least start with common understandings of what we're all trying to achieve and see if we can work through our differences and help each other. And there are enormous investment opportunities. Uh, every financial services institution I know is full speed ahead into China. China has the second largest wealth pool of capital in the world. Again, it's extremely entrepreneurial. Uh, Elon Musk is full speed ahead in China. The smartest people are looking at China and how it can help. And, and if we're not going to have China transform in a positive way, 
we're not going to solve climate change. Countries like India, China, Malaysia, Indonesia, these should be really big focuses for those who care about climate change. And all too often we're focused on the EU taxonomy or, you know, what, you know, what Amazon is doing or what have you, which is fine, but what about the big picture? And so our book was an attempt to try to bring some sense to this conversation and and to see if there was a positive way forward. Things have moved in a different direction, but uh, we had Secretary Kerry in our Yale class two years ago. He was extremely upset with the fact that the previous administration had destroyed the relationship, and he was keen on getting the U.S. and China to invest together in ramping up renewables around the developing world. So you can see where his head is at, and it's great to see him empowered now in the White House. Thank you, Kerry. You mentioned so many interesting points. You're absolutely right when it comes to China's 5,000-year history and all of its innovation. I myself spent over a year in China trying to learn the language and understand culture and society and so on. And it requires a lot of conscious effort, especially if you've never lived in China before. The list of innovations that China has come up with across those 5,000 years is super long. But going back to your book, Modern China, the first chapter is titled The Cooperation Imperative. And you even have the example of the US-China Green Fund that was established back in 2014-2015 by Hank Paulson, who is the former secretary of the US Treasury. And this fund was meant to be a bridge for technology and capital between the two countries. Also, COP26 took place about a month ago, and you were part of a debate on whether COP26 was a success or failure from both a Chinese and American perspective. And recently, there was an agreement between the two countries regarding climate cooperation. So could you touch more on the US-China climate finance cooperation potential, but also from a global perspective? Because small countries and islands, such as Mauritius, where my mother's from, we are quite vulnerable to climate change and the decisions that are taken by the big countries. I was excited to see the US-China uh, announcement. I think it, re it really was Secretary Kerry and his you know, long-term relationship with Xi Shenhua and his desire to do what I just said, which is to, to get the US and China working together as much as possible on these solutions. I think that's where the answer is. It's in that sort of effort. So that was, that was particularly exciting. It, that announcement came, I think a lot of people were pretty depressed with the way COP26 was going. When that came out, it was like, wow. So you know, can we build on that? Can we can we look at how we can all work together in more ways? And even on technology, there's a lot of concern and issues to work through, but uh, that, that for us was particularly exciting. And the, the other thing that happened at COP26 was, you know, Prime Minister Modi from India showed up and said, uh, you know, we need a trillion dollars. You know, India is a country that wants to transform. It just doesn't have the money. And this is going to be increasingly true around the world in countries like Mauritius and other, other parts of the world where transformation just won't be easy. And so I, I think the other missing piece of the puzzle is this sort of missing capital. There's been all this talk about the GCF, the Global Climate Fund, and $100 billion of reparations for climate damage. And that's fine. But, but I mean, where's the $50 trillion going to come from, let alone $100 billion? that we need to actually transform, you know, especially the developing world. So I don't think enough focus is going into, you know, where is that money going to come from? During COP26, BlackRock talked about incentives they would need to help do the work themselves. I mean, I think that they're, they were sort of on the right track. I, I definitely think we need to be more creative. You know, where's that one to five trillion per year over the next 20 years going to come from? It's not going to appear out of thin air, uh, or maybe it will. Because, you know, there are things like 
cryptocurrency now, and we can actually create a coin <laughs> uh, to to do things. And um, so I, I suspect more creative thinking is going to be needed, and and global consensus again required to do some sort of creative giant public private partnership with, with banks. And you know, I'm hoping those conversations start soon because the transition is going to be hard. And the capital's needed, so I'm, I'm more interested in the 50 trillion than that 100 billion. And uh, you know, for me, I would either transform the COP process altogether. Really, think it's it's not a waste of time to bring everyone together. But why are we asking countries to agree when it's corporations and investors and people that are going to determine whether we solve climate change? I don't think countries can do more than support what their people want. Uh, we saw with Australia, the, they tried putting a carbon price in place some time ago. That government got voted out and is still out to this day. So there's a real political danger of not playing chess with these things. And we need to build consensus globally, then the policymakers can follow. So, uh, but you know, in, regardless of that, getting countries together to agree on things they can do together, such as Bill Nordhaus talks about, the Carbon Country Club idea of getting countries together to agree on a carbon pricing mechanism. And if you don't participate, you get a tariff. That sort of thing might be helpful to explore. Uh, but mostly, how do we positively invest together to make the changes occur that we need to see happen? You know, I think not enough conversations are happening in that area. And the US-China agreement, for me, was a great first step in that regard. We're reaching near the end of this very interesting conversation. I have two more questions. The first one is regarding advice to academics in the sustainable finance space. It is clear to us all that there is a massive gap in terms of knowledge and information for sustainable finance. One of the many interesting things that you have done is you have added a sample curriculum to some of the books that you publish. So a lecturer or professor can use your book and teach it to their university students. There's still a lot more that needs to be done. What advice do you have to academics who want to be more involved in sustainable finance? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. I think it's important. You know, one of the things we're hoping to do at the Sustainable Finance Institute is to train the trainers. So uh, you think about China, there's over a thousand universities and maybe there's three classes on the subject or something with it at this point. We might do a little, a little teaching ourselves, but yeah, how much can one person do? So yeah, so training the trainers is a big opportunity. And uh, from that perspective, you know, in my experience, I've been teaching maybe as long as anyone on the subject since 2009, pretty consistently. 12 classes last year, 10 this year, already a bunch scheduled next year. It has to be kept fun. There's so many things happening in our field. Uh, we, we do these synthesis reports, try to really be genuine about what's effective or what's just noise. You have a lot of coalitions announced and then nothing ever happens. So I think it's interesting to explore all the different aspects of the field. How do you really measure impact? What can impact investing really do? What fund managers are succeeding? What are their methodologies? And get the students involved in building uh, their own projects and helping them think things through for themselves. But keep it fun. Don't, get, don't spend a lot of time in the dry, like what is ESG conversation. Because you can just anyone can just read that. So yeah, keep it fun and engage the students and empower them, and and empower the teachers, is what I would say. And also, we have to look much more in a forward way than looking backwards. And too much of the work in our field has been backward looking, 
It's like if you're going to a horse race, you know, and you and you're relying strictly on past performances, that won't necessarily tell you which horse will win the race. And we need to help enable the transformations. Those are future looking. You know, past performances may not tell you where we're going. Like the 2020s may have turned out to be a decade that uh, stale legacy economics will miss entirely. We've seen this a lot with things like discounted cash flow calculations or all of the successful technology companies in the US, they were breaking the valuation models along the way. So we, we, have, to, we have to come up with new ways of thinking and not get trapped in sort of old school legacy thinking because economics is a field that has tunnel vision by definition. It's only really looking at the last 50 years or so. If you expand your scope out to 5,000 years, then you have the history of China, you have the boom and bust cycles in the 1800s. And where are we going next? Economics doesn't tell us that. The Descuptor Review came out of the UK, was a great piece of work telling us that we need to embed the price of nature into decision-making. We haven't done that, and the report didn't inform us on how to do that, but we can see that it would be useful. So this is all future stuff. There is no price on nature right now. How do we get to the point where we're factoring these things in so we don't just degrade systems? So a lot of important work remains to be done. And I try to get students excited by exploring what is working, what isn't working. And I think that's when teaching is most effective. My last question is regarding the youth. The young generation want to learn more about sustainable finance and make a meaningful impact. Hopefully, a lot of them are listening to the Climate Finance Podcast, especially this episode. What advice would you give them, Carrie? It's getting possible to actually make a difference in your career. That was not always true. It definitely was not true in the, er- the early decades of my career. I kind of made it happen. People who are most successful in this industry, they just take the initiative and they make it happen. We're seeing that in Climate Tech VC with people like Sophie Purdom, who's just risen up on her own largely and, and just getting it done. We see that over and over again. It's true throughout the history of sustainable finance as well. Really identify for yourself, like, what are your strengths? What do you care about? What is it that you want to see happen differently? And how do you think you can help make that happen? It's fine to be a generalist and look at all of ESG, but we see success from people who are driven, who can be convincing, and can develop new ideas that can solve problems that are not being solved. And I think that's where the action will be because it has to be that way. So it's an exciting time to get into the field. I'd encourage everyone uh, to do so. And if I can ever help, let me know. Thank you, Carrie, for this wonderful conversation. I'm really honored to have this conversation with you. And I learned a lot from you. I hope the listeners will gain inspiration from your work. Have a great day in New Haven. Uh, thanks so much, Jonas. Thanks for being such a great student and knowledgeable yourself and your experiences are wonderful to hear. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.